This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Nicole Holliday, a linguistics professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Ben Zimmer, language columnist for The Wall Street Journal. And this is Spectacular Vernacular, a podcast where we not only explore language, we also play with it. This week, our guest is Will Shorts, crossword puzzle editor at The New York Times. And later, Will challenges us with his own wordplay quiz. Well, Ben, it's been an exhausting few weeks in the news. Uh, Last month, we talked about the pronunciation of Kyiv, which unfortunately has become more and more relevant since Russia invaded Ukraine at the end of February. Uh, And since we discussed it, several news outlets have picked up on the Kiev-Kyiv distinction as having political significance. Right. So we talked all about the pronunciation of Kiev, for instance, that pronunciation Kiev and the spelling K-I-E-V, that reflects an older Russian standard while Kyiv and the spelling K-Y-I-V do a better job of representing the Ukrainians' own name for their capital city in their own language, Ukrainian. Right, but there's still a lot of confusion out there with some claiming that Ukrainian is just, quote, a dialect of Russian, which of course serves Putin's narrative that Ukraine belongs to Russia. And what's tricky, though, is that linguists don't have a single criteria for what differentiates a language versus a dialect. Well, one metric that folks sometimes use is mutual intelligibility, or whether or not speakers can understand each other. So according to some analyses of lexical difference, uh, which just focuses on the words in the language, Ukrainian and Russian are about as far apart as French and Portuguese are from each other. And generally, people don't call Portuguese a dialect of French. Yeah, I've never heard that. (laughs) And this all reminds me of one of my favorite linguistic quotes from early sociolinguist Max Weinreich, when he says, a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. So essentially, the way people talk about these differences is mostly based on political factors, not necessarily linguistic ones. Uh, Have you ever heard linguists talk about a thing called BCS? BCS. Wait, wait, I know this one. It's college football, right? Isn't that the bowl championship series? Not quite. I guess that's also another another BCS. (laughs) Oh, okay. Then you must mean Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian. Uh, Yeah, that is a classic puzzle in the dialect versus language discussion. Yeah, students often ask me what's the difference between a dialect and a language, and BCS is one of the main examples I give them to illustrate why that question is so hard. Uh, First, though, we've got to start with a little history. Uh, Historians think that the South Slavic languages have been spoken in the Balkans since the end of the Ottoman Empire, though the specifics of language contact are less well-documented than we might want them to be. Yeah, we do know that there were some well-documented efforts to unite the languages spoken in the Balkans. 
So, for example, there's the 1850 Vienna Literary Agreement, which was a meeting of writers from Croatia, Serbia, and modern-day Slovenia, uh, which aimed to see if the literary traditions of these places could be united in an effort to standardize the Serbo-Croatian language. Yeah, and they were calling it Serbo-Croatian at the time. But that, to me, makes me nervous because it sounds like top-down language reform, which is pretty unnatural. Yeah, that kind of effort often has, uh, let's say, mixed results. <laughs> But in this case, since the aims were literary and the language varieties are relatively close, the linguists and authors who met there were able to make some progress towards their aim of selecting a common literary language. Uh, and they did this by selecting one of the dialects and agreeing on writing conventions. So, of course, after this meeting, people continued to write in their own varieties, but they had sort of established this idea of a prestige standard for writing, independent of speaking, um, which is, of course, easier to enforce um, because of the differences between writing and speech. And this agreement became important later on during the establishment of Yugoslavia when political leaders used it as a basis for arguing for historical and linguistic unity of the territories that they were trying to bring together. Yeah, so uh, I think I know where this is going. Um, if the argument was that this Vienna Literary Agreement could be used to claim a sense of national unity... What happens when independence movements break up Yugoslavia? That's where we start to get things like BCS. So during independence movements, uh, citizens frequently take pride in the establishment of a national language that helps to distinguish a new nation from its neighbors that it was possibly previously grouped with. So nowadays, Bosniaks speak Bosnian, Croats speak Croatian, and Serbians speak Serbian. And don't the Montenegrins of Montenegro speak Montenegrin? Yeah, let's not leave out the Montenegrins. <laughs> But when linguists want to describe similarities in the language family, they'll sometimes use BCS or BCMS if they're including Montenegrin. But truly, the languages belong to their speakers. So decisions about when to talk about them as similar or distinct are always inherently political. Yeah, and we're seeing a similar phenomenon with Ukraine now. Putin and others who believe that Ukraine should be theirs Uh, seek to minimize the distinctions between Russian and Ukrainian. But Ukrainians fighting for their independence and sovereignty have a rightful claim to their own language as well. Of course, and while there are much bigger issues involved here, at least understanding the history of these languages and dialects can help us better evaluate some of the political discourse we hear. After the break, we're back to talk with Puzzle Master Will Shorts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Spectacular Vernacular. Our guest today is puzzle master extraordinaire Will Shorts. Will is the longtime crossword editor of the New York Times, host of the Sunday Puzzle on NPR's Weekend Edition, and the founder and director of the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament. He'll be hosting the 44th annual crossword tournament in Stamford, Connecticut, coming up soon on April 1st through 3rd. Welcome to the show, Will. Thank you, Nicole. Hello, Ben. Oh, he's an afterthought, huh? <laughs> uh, now you guys go way back. And I should mention that the three of us have another connection. The Noah Webster House in West Hartford, Connecticut, had an online fundraiser last year featuring a lighthearted competition called Webster's War of the Words. And you, Ben, and I were on the winning team. 
Woohoo! And honestly, Ben carried the weight for all three of us, I think I can say. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, as Nicole mentioned, uh, uh, well, you and I go way back. Believe it or not, we met almost 40 years ago. It's, it's kind of hard to believe. So when I was 10 years old, I joined a group called the National Puzzlers League, which is devoted to creating and solving word puzzles. And the next year, in 1982... Uh, I attended my first NPL convention, which was in Indianapolis, and one of the hosts was Will Shorts, at the time an editor at Games Magazine. Uh, and here we are, four decades later, and Will, honestly, I don't think you've aged a bit. Oh, <laughs> oh I wish. Well, so let's go back to those early days. Will, you graduated from Indiana University with a self-designed major in enigmology? Oh, almost. There we go. Enigmatology. I knew I was going to get it one of these days. Enigmatology, which is the study of puzzles. And then you went to law school at the University of Virginia before deciding to pursue puzzling full time. Did that really seem like a viable career option at the time? No, it did not. I went to law school. My original idea was that I would practice law for 10 years, make enough money to retire and do what I really wanted, which was puzzles. But the summer before I went to law school, I had an internship a position with Penny Press Puzzle Magazines in Connecticut. Loved it, and that let me allowed that let me see how I could have a career in puzzles without making them. Because you know, puzzles don't pay much. So, um, spring of my first year at law school, I wrote my parents. Uh, as I did every week, this long handwritten letter. And uh, toward the end of the letter, I just dropped in the news that I would be dropping out of law school at the end of the year. And uh, you can imagine how that news went over with my parents. Uh, and I got a long letter back explaining all the reasons why that was a terrible idea. And they said, uh, my mom said the perfect thing. She said, whatever you decide, uh, we will love you. And uh, I thought her reasoning was good, so I went ahead and got my law degrees. And then uh, when I graduated, then they wanted me to take the bar exam. Nope. And I said, too late. I'm going right into puzzles. And I've never looked back. That's amazing. And just about a year out of law school, in 1978, you started the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament, which is still going strong, uh, even in pandemic times. Could you tell us a bit about how that tournament has, has grown and evolved over the years? Yeah, I was working at Penny Press in fall of 77, just after graduating from law school. There was a new hotel in Stamford, Connecticut. The Marriott Hotel had just opened. The director of marketing was looking for a way to bring in business on a slow winter weekend. And uh, he called the New York Times crossword editor, Eugene T. Maleska, uh, who was not interested in running a crossword tournament. He recommended a constructor in Stamford who was a friend of mine, and he recommended me. So we uh, organized this crossword thing, American Crossword Puzzle Tournament. Got a huge amount of publicity because it was a new thing. There was, uh, let's see, NBC and CBS both uh, had news stories, national news stories on it. There was a feature article in, uh, in Sports Illustrated, Associated Press, UPI, all sorts of media. 
huge amount of publicity, and uh, we've been doing it ever since. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, it's big when you're uh, being covered by the sports journalists. <laughs> but as a result of the pandemic, the tournament was canceled for the first time in 2020, and then it was held as a virtual event in 2021. But this year, you're heading back to Stanford for an in-person tournament again, um, though people can still take part online if they want, um, since there's a non-competitive virtual option. And we'll drop a link in the show notes for people who might want to participate either in person or virtually. What has it been like trying to plan out this tournament during the pandemic times? So I've had to reorient my brain. It's been, it's been since 2019 that I've uh, I had to plan and organize an in-person tournament. Uh, it's going to be good. We have a fantastic program this year. Josh Wardle, who you know, is going to come and talk about the craze he started. You're talking about Wordle, of course. Yes, the man behind Wordle. And uh, he's going to conduct an in-person Wordle contest on people's smartphones. That's going to be so much fun. And on Saturday night, we have a something called a palindrome fight, where Mark Saltfight, who's a professional, I guess you'd say, palindromist, is uh, going to do a stand-up routine with palindromes. And then we have a palindrome writing competition. And we're going to have a, there's an annual award to the uh, Merle Regal Award for Lifetime Achievement in Crossword Construction. This year, it's going to Emily Cox and Henry Rathbaum, uh, the great uh, creators of cryptic crosswords. And we're going to have a tribute to them. That's all in addition to the regular tournament. Just trying to put this thing together when there's so much uncertainty must be really challenging. And, and I have to say that the pandemic has created lots of challenges, of course. But in some ways, this has been a real golden age of wordplay, it seems. There's been a real upswing and in interest in all kinds of word puzzles and games. And of course, you have firsthand experience with this since the popularity of the New York Times crossword is bigger than ever. And we've seen tremendous enthusiasm over word games like the New York Times Spelling Bee. And, of course, uh, we already talked about Wordle, the latest acquisition by New York Times Games. So what do you think accounts for this pandemic-era wordplay boom that we're seeing? Well, there has been an increase in word games and word puzzles, sophisticated word puzzles, for a while now. And, of course, the uh, pandemic uh, accentuated this interest as people were at home and had time on their hands. But I think there are two other big factors driving the interest in word puzzles. One is our world today is faster paced than it's ever been before. And when you think about a daily New York Times or daily crossword in the newspaper, it's got on average 76 answers and 76 clues, each on a different subject. Your mind jumps from one thing to another. That just feels right for this modern age where our minds jump from one thing to another and multitask more than ever. And the second thing is, I think more people today have jobs and work that involve their brains than ever before. And when you're done with your regular job, your brain doesn't stop working. You want to relax, but it's going to keep working on something. And puzzles are a perfect way for your brain to keep working. So uh, I think those are two big factors driving the interest in word games today. Yeah, but the New York Times crossword 
is pretty old. It actually recently celebrated its 80th anniversary since it was started by Margaret Farrer back in February 1942, not long after World War II began. And Farrer famously said, you can't think of your troubles while solving a crossword. (laughs) Do you think the interest in word puzzles and games is also sort of a result of being in a time of crisis that people turn to puzzles when there's more stress, maybe? That's true. Absolutely true. And uh, we we are living in a stressful time right now. And what she said is absolutely right. When you are focused on a crossword and uh, you block out everything else in the world, it, uh, when you finish the challenge, you feel this immense sense of satisfaction and accomplishment, and then you're ready to go back to everything else in the world. But crosswords are popular in stressful times. And I know that you've actually expanded the puzzle offerings uh, at the New York Times, especially in the print edition Um, And that's something that you started doing right at the beginning of the pandemic, I guess. Can you tell us just about how you've done that, sort of giving more puzzle content for people to uh, sink their teeth into during this time, uh, like when people might be feeling more isolated, might have more time on their hands for puzzles? Yeah. Well, at the start of the pandemic, we added some more puzzles to the, in addition to the crossword and KenCam, which we had already ran. Uh, We now have a new logic puzzle called Two Not Touch, two of them every day. And then there's a a rotating word puzzle, sometimes word teasers that I create, uh, and also cryptograms and some puzzles in verse. And uh, paradoxically, you know, more while more and more people are absorbing the times online and digitally, the newspaper still makes, I think it still makes the more than half of its money from the print edition. So the idea was, what can we give print readers to reward them for continuing to support print? And puzzles are one way to do that. Finally, I wanted to talk about the late, great Stephen Sondheim, who passed away last November. Um, I wrote a piece for Slate after Sondheim died about his role in introducing Americans to a puzzle style that's typically thought of as a British pursuit, and that would be the cryptic crossword crosswords where the clues themselves are little puzzles to figure out with wordplay in them. And Sondheim was a fan of a particularly fiendish kind of cryptic crossword that was published in the British magazine The Listener. And when I wrote that piece, Will, you helped me out considerably (laughs) by dipping into your incredible puzzle library that you have. And that archive includes all of Sondheim's solved listener puzzles going back to 1950 including a fully completed grid from 1956 when he and Leonard Bernstein were solving puzzles together while they worked on West Side Story. So could you tell us about how you got to know Stephen Sondheim and how you ended up with his puzzle archive? Yeah, so uh, I was working at Games Magazine in the early 1980s, and we did a feature story on Sondheim and his love of games. At the time, his uh, home in uh, Manhattan was lined with antique board games and puzzle-related things. So we did a feature story on him, and I got to go over to his place. And uh, he saw my that I was fired with a love of puzzles, and he turned over this fantastic collection of... Uh, he had clipped the cryptic crossword from the Listener magazine each week, and he turned over his entire archive to me. It's a treasure. It's really incredible. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we've talked before. I mean, there there was interest already in the U.S. for this kind of crossword, the cryptic crossword. But thanks to Sondheim publishing his own listener-style cryptic crosswords in New York Magazine in the late 1960s, 
that inspired a whole generation of puzzlers. You mentioned Cox and Rathvon, who are receiving a special award at the Crossword Puzzle Tournament as a lifetime achievement for what they've done. They were kind of picking up what Sondheim had started. And obviously, since they started doing it in the 1970s, originally in the Atlantic, cryptic crosswords have just become more popular on this side of the Atlantic, right? That's correct. And they're never going to supp- uh, you know, supplant American-style crosswords. But there's a growing audience of sophisticated solvers who love cryptic crosswords, like you and me. I'm not like totally acculturated into them yet, but I I aspire to someday be a cryptic crossword person. (laughs) Come on in, the water's fine. (laughs) Well, Will, this has been so much fun that we don't want to let you go. Would you be willing to stick around a little longer for our next segment? Yes, I will. Well, so after the break, it's time for some wordplay with Puzzle Master Will Shorts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Welcome back. Now it's the time in the show where we play with language. Well, we're delighted that Will Shorts is sticking around for our wordplay quiz. Uh, You know, a couple of episodes ago, we had puzzle maker Peter Gordon turn the tables on us and present us with a wordplay challenge. And we thought it would be a great idea for Will to do that, too. We wouldn't want to miss out on an opportunity to get quizzed by the puzzle master himself. Will, you pretty much invented the genre that we've been playing with on our show. Uh, You've been the puzzle master on NPR's Weekend Edition since 1987, so that's older than me, I think. Uh, Challenging public radio listeners every Sunday morning with on-air wordplay quizzes. And you just celebrated your 35th anniversary of the Sunday Puzzle, which is quite a milestone. How have you managed to keep coming up with fresh material? Yeah, sometimes I wonder that myself. I lie in bed and think, oh boy, I need to think of another puzzle by tomorrow. Somehow, the ideas keep coming. You have other puzzlers helping you out with ideas too. They make suggestions that you can use. Right. The on-air puzzles are always mine. And then the challenge puzzles are often now contributed by listeners. Well, that definitely helps. But yeah, you still have to come up with that one um, that you do on the air every week. And I'm amazed. I mean, we've been working hard to do our own uh, wordplay quizzes. But the fact that you've been doing doing these every week since 1987 is truly incredible. So thank you for coming up with yet another puzzle that's just for us. And, well, we're, we're in your hands. You know, go for it with whatever you have planned for us. Okay, Ben and Nicole, these puzzles are all original, made just for you. They're a little harder than what I do on the air on NPR. Ah, uh, we got the advanced version. <laughs> but they're a little easier than the challenge puzzles that I give on, on NPR. So here's number one. Rearrange the letters of male organ, M-A-L-E-O-R-G-A-N. Rearrange the letters of male organ to name two languages. 
Well, I like that you're giving us something with a linguistic theme. Nicole, do you see any languages in those letters? I am not great at this type of task. <laughs> There's one, one of the two is, is, is a, a big language, an important language, widely spoken language. And once you get that, then you'll get the other one. Can we get a little more, a geographic hint, perhaps? Yes, uh, that one of the languages is European. Georgian, it's almost Georgian. No, <laughs> it's only one G. <laughs> uh, start, you got the right first letter. German. German. There you go. <laughs> okay, so if we remove the letters of German from there, uh, we would be left with, let's see, oh, L-A-O spells Lao as spoken in Laos. German plus Lao. Oh, wow. Bravo. Number two. The name of what language becomes a phrase meaning to accompany someone if you insert an N? Oh. <laughs> oh, Ben, it looks like you I, have... Uh... I do know this one. I do know this one. This one it came much, much faster than the first one. Okay, so to accompany, I was like, escort? Yeah. It's like a two-word phrase that means this, right? Right. So, so someone, uh, someone important is going somewhere, and you decide to, in two words, to accompany them. Oh, Tagalog, tagalog, yeah. Tagalog and tagalog, nice. All right, you ready for number three? Let's do it. All right. The first two letters of a certain language name are the same as its last two letters, and between these pairs of letters is the name of an African animal. What language is it? Nicole, should we try to start with the animal or, or and build out from there? I thought maybe lion would be in the middle. That's a likely suspect. Not, not lion, I'm afraid. I'd start with the language side. Well, let's see. Common endings for languages, of course, A-N, if it began with A-N and ended with A-N. Okay, that's not it. Keep going. Okay. It could end ish or ease. <laughs> ease, if it ended in E-S-E, then it would have to start with S-E. Uh-huh, that's not it. Can you give us the continent of the language? <laughs> yes, it's European. Oh, I got it. Got to go way north. Icelandic has, starts and ends in IC, and then in the middle is one of those great crossword words. You got to know that Eland as a sort of a, it's kind of like an antelope, I guess, but uh, found in Africa. Well, I'm, I'm impressed, Ben. I got uh, one more one more uh, puzzle for you guys. Here's your last one. Remove four letters. We'll take the phrase capital gain. C-A-P-I-T-A-L-G-A-I-N. Remove four letters from capital gain. So the remaining seven letters name a language reading from left to right. Oh, so we don't have to actually rearrange letters this time. Just read them in order. You don't have to rearrange. Just drop four letters and a language will read from left to right. Okay. Oh, I, I do see this one also. I'm, I'm glad I didn't have to anagram it to figure it out. Is it Catalan? I'm impressed. Boy, talking about redeeming strong finish. Oh, that was, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. I'm glad I redeemed myself there at the end. <laughs> and Will, I understand that you've also got a challenge for our listeners. Yes. So here we go. The name of what widely spoken language becomes the name of another widely spoken language if you change the third letter from P to V. That's P as in Peter and V as in Victoria. So the name of what widely spoken language becomes the name of another widely spoken language if you change the third letter from P to V. 
Okay, well, if you think you know the answer to Will's puzzle, please send it to us at spectacularatslate.com with quiz in the subject line of your email. From the correct entries, we'll randomly select a winner who will receive a Slate Plus membership for one year. Or if you're already a Slate Plus member, you'll get a one-year extension on your subscription. So once again, that's spectacular at Slate.com with quiz in the subject line. And please respond by midnight Eastern time on March 23rd. And we're also very pleased to announce the winner of the challenge from our March 1st episode. Sarah Hargis Ferguson figured out that Svengali anagrams into the names of two musicians, Gil Evans and Vangelis. Congratulations, Sarah. And thanks for joining us, Will. It was a pleasure, Nicole. Thank you. That's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like full access to all the articles on Slate.com, zero ads on any Slate podcast, and bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and One Year. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Spectacular Plus. Thanks again to Will Shorts for being our guest this week. Spectacular Vernacular is produced by Jasmine Ellis, June Thomas, a senior managing producer for Slate Podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with more Spectacular Vernacular. Thanks for listening.